Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Angels have always been a subject of great fascination, inspire and intrigue us throughout history for thousands of years from different countries and cultures. We've always had this interest in these winged spiritual creatures. And as a result of this great fascination, there are some interesting ideas about angels. So I'd like to start off by showing you a few of my favorites. The first, this guy, Cupid, the angel of love who flies around shooting people with little heart arrows. That's cool. It's not weird at all. Sometimes we might question his aim, but cool, sure, right, that seems like an angel. Next, we have this guy angel on your shoulder, spiritual version of Jiminy Cricket, who offers you wise counsel when facing a tough decision so that you could know what the good moral thing to do and any choice is, as if listening to this person with horns and a pitchfork isn't the obvious, don't do that. Because life is always, right, such a clear cut, this is the right and this is the wrong thing to do. It's a good thing we have the little floaty angel on our shoulder to tell us. The next... We have my personal favorite, the Gerber baby angel. Look at how cute, little squishy cheeks. And the first thing, so what pops in my head when I see this picture is the Roman soldiers at the grave, when the angels come down and the stone is rolled away, these battle-hardened, elite-trained soldiers who have seen combat in their lives fall down as if dead, and they lay like dead men. And I look at that and I go, yeah, that makes sense. Sure, why wouldn't soldiers be afraid of that? Who isn't terrified of something that looked like it crawled out of an Ann Getty calendar? I have practical questions, not the least of which is if they're babies, they're not walking. So they can fly, though? Like, that's cool. Like, I would assume, maybe just because I don't have wings, that flying would be more difficult than walking. Apparently, I'm wrong on that. But also, practically, angels exist to be messengers. So why would you have your messenger be a baby that can't talk? Don't understand. Next, we have this classic depiction of an angel. I want to draw your attention to what the angel is playing. This is a very common theme with angels. They apparently love to play the harp, so heaven is going to sound like an eternal elevator. <laughs> Yay! Then we have this one. If you notice what the angel is wearing, this is another common depiction of angels. They seem to have a really high interest in togas. Because why wouldn't ethereal beings be really into ancient Greek high fashion? And then lastly, we have this guy, who, if you were born after 1990, you have no idea who that is. <laughs> His name is Clarence Oddbody, which is 
very unfortunate for him, and he is the angel from the movie It's a Wonderful Life. His job in the movie is to save the main character, George, and thus earn his wings. Because as we all know, as it is recorded numerous times in Scripture, wings are performance incentives at Angel Incorporated. This is week two in our series, Jesus is Greater. We are studying through the book of Hebrews, and today we're going to do something really novel. We're going to actually open the text and read some of Hebrews. So what we saw, if you get a Bible or Bible app, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. And what we saw last week is that Hebrews is ultimately a book of comparison. It's a theme that we're going to see all throughout this series that the author uses comparison as a tool to demonstrate the significance and the superiority of Jesus. See, when we become a Christian, when we surrender our life to Jesus, we are declaring that he is our Lord and that we seek to live for him and to focus on him and to follow him in every aspect of our lives. And the moment we make that decision, everything in our life starts working against it to draw our focus away from Jesus, to distract us from Jesus, to move our pursuit and devotion off of Jesus. See, the Bible tells us over and over again that Jesus is greater, but the world and everything in it tries to get us to treat Jesus as if he is lesser. So, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, Okay, so last week we noted that the author here almost certainly has to be of Jewish heritage. This is the first thing that gives us that information. This is what's called internal evidence. That means there's something in the text that teaches us something. He refers to the, the prophets, the Jewish prophets, as our fathers. He's including himself in their my fathers too, indicating the author almost certainly has to be Jewish. So God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in, those, but in the last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of his majesty on high. So the first thing he says is that God spoke. This is Incredibly important. God is not some mysterious force shrouded in darkness. He is not silent. He is not some distant deity who demands blind devotion. God is a God of relationship. He desires to know and to be known. He is a God who speaks and who reveals himself to his people. And all throughout history, at different times and in different ways, God has made himself known through divine revelation to his prophets. Okay, so let's just pause right there. Prophets are not people who see the future and predict the future. You can take that idea, you can wad it up and drop it in the rubbish bin. Prophets, biblically, are people who speak the word of God to the people of God. They're people who God has given a message to share with his people. And the Jews love and revere their prophets. So long as their prophets are dead. Nobody likes a prophet while they're alive. Because prophets say things that people don't want to hear. They offend people. They upset people. Because they say, hey, what you're doing is not what God wants you to do. And, well, we don't like to hear that. So when the prophets are alive, they get beaten, mistreated, and murdered. 
And then the next generation goes, man, I wish we had more prophets like that so that we could ignore them, mistreat them, and murder them, and then we could be sad that we don't have more of them. That's kind of the cycle of prophets in Jewish history. God spoke through the prophets. Then God spoke through his son. Which leads to the question, why is the author comparing Jesus to prophets? And this is where understanding why a text was written becomes so important and recognizing what it says. The audience at this time was facing pressure from the world around them to declare that Jesus was a man, a good man, a godly man, that he was in fact a prophet from God. The temptation and the pressure they were facing is just say that he's a prophet. Just declare that he is a guy who God has given a divine message. So this is someone who's from God, who's doing the work of God. You can believe in everything he says. That's fine. Follow those teachings. That's great. He's a prophet from God. Elevate him. Respect him. Honor him. But make him a man. And if they do that, they can return to the synagogue and escape Roman persecution. It's a subtle temptation because it's not rejecting Jesus. It's not denying Jesus. It is the same way the devil has always worked his temptations. It is not to challenge the information that God has given, but rather to challenge our interpretation of it. Obviously, Jesus is from God, so honor him, elevate him. Just make him a man, a prophet, worthy of, of that respect, but not God. So as a prophet has a message from God, Jesus is the Son of God and the heir to all things. And that statement is extremely important for us. See, the reason that we can trust in the promises of Jesus and that we can rest and have peace in the claims that Jesus makes is because of that statement. See, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus makes a whole bunch of promises and claims that all sound really good. But there's a difference between promising something, claiming something, and being able to fulfill that promise. Jesus being the heir to all things, the heir being given from God, means that Jesus has the right to do everything that he said he would do. And then the author says, he is the power through which God created the world. So everything that exists in the universe from the vastness of the cosmos to the tiniest of atoms, all of space and time, were created by the power that is Jesus. So not only does Jesus have the right to do what he says he will do, he also has the power to do what he said he would do. And because of that, we can have confidence and we can rest in his promises. But the author takes it a step further. He says he upholds them all by the power of his word. What that means is that Jesus didn't just create everything that exists. He sustains everything that exists. All life and existence is held in place by the power of the word of Jesus. You draw breath not because your lungs are operating and your heart is beating and your brain is working. You draw breath because Jesus gives you the breath and sustains that breath for you. All that exists, exists because Jesus sustains it by his power. See, prophets were given a message from God to reveal a small portion of himself to his people. 
Jesus is the revelation of God. He is the perfect manifestation of God. So when we look at Jesus, we see God. Because he says he is the exact imprint of God. So while no one has seen God, the more we know Jesus, the more we know who God is and what God is like. Because Jesus is the reflection, the imprint, the nature of God. And then he is our purification. More than the blood of sheep and goats could ever be. Jesus is the purification of sin. For all the wrong that we've done, the mistakes that we've made, the, the, the things that are bad and broken and messed up in us, Jesus purifies us by his blood. And it is a perfect purification. That is, his work is once for all. And his blood is greater than the reason it was spilled. And he is the ruler who sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. That is the seat or the place in a throne room of the highest honor. Now, it's important to note that he says he's sitting. See, whenever we see Levitical priests, they're standing. Anybody want to guess why? Their work is not done. The work that the priests did in service of God with the sacrifices that they offered and the prayers that they did, none of that completed anything. None of it fixed anything. All they were doing was covering up the problem for a period of time. Their work was never finished. Jesus' work is. And so every time we see Jesus post-ascension, he is always depicted as sitting with two exceptions. Acts chapter 6 when he stands to welcome the first Christian martyr, Stephen, and Revelation, right before he comes back. Every other time we see Jesus, he is sitting because the work of Jesus is done. Verse 4. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions, and you... Lord, lay the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. To which of the angels did he ever, has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? In 10 verses, the author quotes seven Old Testament passages to demonstrate the superiority of Jesus to the angels. Wait, I thought we were talking about prophets. Now he's talking about angels. Angels and prophets have something in common. They're messengers. One physical and natural, the other spiritual and supernatural, but they both have the same job. They are providing a message from God. 
And so the temptation that the audience was facing to deny the deity of Jesus and to make him a human, a man, a prophet from God, was not actually the greatest temptation they had. The greatest temptation was to declare that he was an angel. In fact, they could declare that he was the greatest of all of the angels, and that'd be okay. All they had to do was declare that Jesus was a supernatural, spiritual being who worked in the service of God, bringing us a divine message from God. And if they did that, they could go home. The Roman persecution that they faced would end. They could get back their land, their income, their possessions. They could be reconciled with their family. All the suffering, all the struggle, all the pain that they had endured because of Jesus could be done. They could be comfortable. They could be at peace. They could be at ease once again if they would just declare that Jesus was not God, but an angel from God. It's an easy thing to justify, right? Because angels are kind of cool. Angels are powerful. Angels are, I mean, that's a pretty big place to elevate someone to. I mean, right? Angels are awesome. So, Let's talk about angels for a minute. For all of the different ideas and beliefs that we have about angels, we actually know remarkably little. Here's what we know about angels. Angels are referenced over 100 times in the Old Testament and 160 times in the New Testament. They are spiritual beings, which means they have no body. They are typically invisible, but when they do appear, they appear in a human-like form and are often mistaken as men, meaning they don't typically have wings, so I don't usually see a lot of people with wings walking around. <laughs> they have three primary types of angels, cherubim, seraphim, and what are referred to as living creatures. There appears to be some kind of hierarchy, Michael being, or, yeah, Michael being called an archangel, and then there's references to princes and rulers. We don't know what the ranking system is or how it works, but there does appear to be one. There are multitudes of angels. They do not reproduce the word angel in Hebrew and in Greek both mean messenger. And angels have four primary jobs. Worship God. Communicate God's message to his people. Minister to believers. And serve God. And as his servants, they are beings that can wield incredible power. Most everything else that we think or hear about angels is folklore or legend. It is not based in scripture. And just because I can't help myself, let's talk about some of the fun things that we believe about angels that are not exactly right. Number one, we do not worship or pray to angels. Sorry, Catholicism, that's not a thing that we do. The reason for that is all throughout scripture, whenever someone encounters an angel, one of the first things that they do is fall down in reverence. And the immediate thing that happens after that is they're rebuked for doing it. In the temple, in the Old Testament, there was a place called the Holy of Holies. That is where God's presence was sent to dwelt. And to, to dwelt. Grammar, real fun. Okay? <laughs> and between us and that presence of God, there was a great veil that separated us. When Jesus died on the cross, this massive veil was supernaturally split in half, signifying that the divide between God and man was done that we no longer need priests to go to God on our behalf. We don't need saints to pray to and speak to God for us. We don't pray to angels. 
by the power of Jesus, we pray through the Spirit of God directly to God. So we don't pray to, we don't worship angels. Number two, guardian angels. <clears throat> we'll see how much you guys like me. I'm going to show you the number of references to guardian angels and the amount of scriptures that support this idea. Yeah, yeah, it's a big number. There are exactly two references in scripture that show an angel guarding something, and one of those things is a garden. I mean, there's only one time in all of scripture where an angel is guarding a person. So, the idea that everybody has a guardian angel that looks out for them is unbiblical. Doesn't mean that it's wrong. It could be, but there's nothing in Scripture that supports the idea that there is an office or role or specific function of an angel to serve as a guardian for us. And a lot of times, people who hold the idea that they have a guardian angel start making some really weird decisions because they think their guardian angel's there to protect them from it, and it just gets messy. No indication that we have guardian angels. <laughs> and now the big one. People don't become angels. Ever, 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 or also ever. Right? It's not a thing. So, your wonderful, amazing, great Aunt Josephine who passed away is not an angel now looking down on you from heaven doesn't happen. Also, the problem with that is, man, if she's in heaven, why is she looking down here at this great big mess? If people in heaven are focused on what's happening here, heaven is not as advertised. Hey, okay? Got a problem with that. People don't become angels. In fact, the idea of a person becoming an angel makes about as much sense as a screened-in porch on a space station. We are different in design, in function, in purpose, in the very essence of what we are. We are different creatures. For mankind, human beings alone were created in the imago Dei. That is, made in the image of God. Angels are not. Angels are spiritual beings made to worship and to serve. We who belong to Jesus are heirs and sons and daughters of God. So when Jesus returns and takes his people to be with him, we are heirs of salvation and eternal life, and we are children of the king of all kings. Angels, should they continue to exist at all, are still servants. A person becoming an angel is a very, very serious demotion and a really weird thing for them to change into. Brings us to point four, angels are not eternal. They appear to be immortal and sustained by the power of Jesus, but they do have a beginning. They were created, and because they were created, it is very possible that they will have an end. There could be a time in which angels no longer exist and they just disappear. Maybe they last forever, maybe they don't, but they're not eternal. And because you probably want to get to lunch and not stay here on Angelology 301, the lightning round. Angels don't float on puffy clouds. They do not wear halos. They're not particularly fond of togas. They don't play the harp all the time. They typically are not represented with wings outside of a few really weird prophetic things. There's no such thing as the angel of death, and angels never appear in Scripture in female form. Everything else is folklore. But to combat 
the temptation to take these mysterious, supernatural, intriguing beings and to declare that Jesus is one of them, the author stops and spends time comparing Jesus to angels. Whereas angels are messengers, Jesus is the heir who gives the messages. Angels are servants. Jesus is the son. Angels are created. Jesus is the creator. Angels are made to worship. Jesus is the one they were made to worship. He has a greater name, is a greater being, has greater status, and a greater title. He is greater than the angels in every single way. In fact, the most exalted angels who receive the highest honor are those who are allowed to stand in the presence of God, which means the greatest thing that an angel can aspire or hope for is to be allowed to stand in Jesus' presence. Because Jesus is greater. And so both of these pressures that are being placed on the early church are coming from the same thing. Honor Jesus. Value Jesus. Elevate Jesus. Just don't make him God. Put him up on a pedestal. Celebrate him. Follow him. Respect him. But make him just a little less than he is. And that temptation is not just something that first century Christians who are facing persecution struggle with. That is a struggle that each and every one of us faces every single day. To be a Christian is to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus is to surrender yourself to him, to declare that he is your Lord, and to submit every aspect of your life, every aspect of who you are to him. And the temptation we face every day is trying to take that power back. To live for ourselves, to rule ourselves, to govern ourselves, to follow our desires and our interests. Every day we face the temptation to think that our life belongs to us and we have a right to it. Every day we face this temptation to do what is easy, what is convenient, what is comfortable, what is safe. We have this temptation to do what we want, to live for ourselves, to focus on what we want and desire and pursue ourselves. Every day we have the temptation to elevate Jesus as Savior, but reduce him as Lord. And we make this choice over and over and over again between honoring and obeying Jesus and honoring and obeying our own desires and pursuits. And every time we choose ourselves, we make our view of the lordship and sovereignty of Jesus just a little bit smaller. The temptation that we face is not directly denying Jesus. It is diminishing him beyond what he is. It is to make him lesser. Because Jesus cannot be diminished That's what the author is doing. This is not a rebuke. He's warning the people. And in that warning, there's an encouragement. Look at these angels. They're powerful and they're incredible and they're inspiring. I mean, one angel fights 175,000 Assyrian soldiers, kills them all single-handedly. And we go, whew, that's cool. If I had something like that fighting for me, I could get through this struggle. 
If I had something like that, a power like that on my side, I would have the confidence to keep on going in this because, man, that's cool. And what he's saying is Jesus is greater than that. There is nothing that you could turn to, no power that you could rely on, no place that you could place your hope or your trust that is greater than Jesus. And the problem that we face is that our view of Jesus is too small. See, Jesus will always be greater than your conception of him. When you focus on Jesus, he becomes greater. When you fix your eyes on Jesus, he becomes greater. When you pursue Jesus, he becomes greater. When you follow him, he becomes greater. When you dwell in him, he becomes greater. But here's the thing. It's not Jesus who's changing. It's your understanding. No matter how deep you go, no matter how much you spend with him, you will never fully comprehend the depth of his greatness. And so the remedy that we are offered to endure the struggles and hardships and trials of the world is Jesus. It's make Jesus greater in your life by focusing on him and growing in him and enriching your relationship with him so that you can see more of how great he is because the greater your view of Jesus, the lesser all the problems and struggles that come against you will seem. Now, some of you who are here today and you struggle with self-doubt, you believe in Jesus you believe in, in grace and everything in the gospel. You're here for that. You, you are excited about that. And you believe that the salvation that Jesus offers and the grace that he pours out is this wonderful thing for everybody else. But not you. Not you. Because you're broken. You're messed up. You've sinned too much, done too much. You are too far gone. You have crossed a line and are beyond his salvation. Yes, Jesus pours out his grace and his love, and he does that for people, but that's not you because you're not worthy of that. You're not deserving of that because you carry this heavy burden of guilt and shame for the things in your life. You look at the person you were before and the things that you've done and you don't know how to let go of it. And you allow your imperfections to define you. You allow your failures to dictate who you are. You look at the scope and the weight of your sin and you just can't let it go. How could anybody love you if they knew all the things that you had done the problem is that your view of Jesus is too small because he is greater than your sin. He is greater than your imperfections and your failures and your shortcomings. Paul, who writes two-thirds of the New Testament, says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus died to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Jesus is greater than your sin. He always has been. He always will be. And he died for that sin knowing the full weight of it. Jesus didn't get bait and switched with you. 
He knew every sin you commit in the entirety of your life, sins that you haven't even thought of committing yet. He knew all of them. And he died for them the same. Once for all. In a perfect purification. Now what I want you to hear, what I want you to understand this morning, is that Jesus is not in love with some future version of you where you get your act together, you clean up your mess, and you get it right. Jesus is in love with you right now, sitting in that pit, sitting in that darkness, in that brokenness, in that struggle, sitting in the mess that you have. He is in love with you as you are. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus didn't wait for us to cry out to him. He didn't wait for us to fix ourselves and get ourselves right. It says Jesus came while we were still sinners. He died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, he paid his price for us. While we were still broken and in rebellion and in active rejecting him, he died for us. Jesus loves you in your mess. He also loves you too much to leave you there. And when we feel burdened by the weight of our guilt and shame, the problem is not the imperfection of our hearts, it's that our view of Jesus is too small. When you're anxious, when you're afraid, when you're worried and the things of life seem to stack up against you and it feels helpless and hopeless and you don't know how you're ever going to get through it, the problem is not what's in front of you. It's that your view of Jesus is too small. All of creation cries out to the greatness of who he is. And he is greater than anything that we face. And the more we focus on him, the more we dwell in him, the more we fix our eyes on him, the more we see the greatness of who he is. And all those struggles and all those doubts and all those obstacles get so much smaller because we're not looking at the problem. We're looking at the Savior who delivers us from those problems. Not always in the way we expect, not always in the timing that we want to know that he is greater than your pain, than your sin, than your brokenness. He's greater than what's been done to you and the scars that you carry. He's greater than the loneliness that you feel. He's greater than all of it. And so the cure to our struggle is to fix our eyes on him. It's to focus our hearts on him that we might see the greatness of who he is. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The commission of Jesus is simple. Take your burdens, take your struggles, take your low view of yourself, take your brokenness and your pain and all the things that this world tries to do to take your eyes off of him and lay it at the foot of the cross. And trust that Jesus will take care of it because he is greater than all of it.
remind yourself of the greatness of who he is, the less you will concern yourself with the troubles and worries of this world. And there's no better way to see that than to remind ourselves of what he has done. On your way in, there's a table that has a cup and juice. If you did not grab that, if you want to go grab one uh, from there, if you are a believer, we're going to invite you to take communion together with us in just a moment. I want you to think about this. God has all the power, all the authority, all the control in the universe. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and no one can question, challenge, or stop him. And what does he choose to do with that power? To love us. To forgive us. To offer us grace and mercy. What does he choose to do with all the power in the world that he could do whatever he wants with? He chooses to die on a cross out of his love for you. Tell me your sin is greater than that. Tell me your sin is greater than the being that spoke the fabric of the universe into existence. Tell me. Because this is the declaration that it's not. This is the declaration that Jesus' love for you allowed himself, God, who spoke the cosmos, took on flesh and allowed the people that he created and the people who he breathed life into to break his body, to torture him and murder him. While he was sustaining them, Jesus actively sustained the life of the people who killed him. The people who reject him, who deny him, who make him less. This is the declaration of his love for you and the reminder that he is greater than everything else. Let's take the body together. that represents the blood of Jesus. The blood that covers our sins. The blood that purifies us from sins. is symbolic of us taking the life of Jesus into ourselves. And so doing that we might be made a little bit more like him. Let's take it together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love and the grace that you pour out on us. And I pray for all of us who struggle to accept, to understand, to recognize the greatness of who you are in our lives. I pray that we could see it, that we would experience it in a radical life-changing encounter with you, that you would take away the distractions and the burdens and that you would help us fix our eyes on you. That every day we might better understand the greatness of who you are. And we might be demonstrations of that to the world around us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace.